0: Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at ChrisHedges.substack.com. There are very few intellectuals who have been as attacked, censored, and blacklisted as long and as ruthlessly as the middle Eastern scholar Norman Finkelstein. He has been hounded out of universities, denied speaking engagements, had his books and scholarship either ignored or dismissed. It is surprising, perhaps, that Professor Finkelstein's latest book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom, is a savage attack on identity politics. He likens the current woke culture of the left to red-baiting when his heroes, Paul Robeson, Pete Seeger, Rosa Luxemburg... Paul Sweezy, and Annette Rubinstein were marginalized and, in the case of Luxembourg, assassinated. The cancel culture of my childhood. Targeted, he writes, in the name of anti-communism, popular leftist movements rooted primarily in class politics. The new cancel culture still targets class politics, but this time round in the pseudo-radical name of identity politics. Plus, ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Whereas class politics has historically focused on a massive redistribution of wealth from the haves to the have-nots, identity politics, racial, sexual, etc in the uppermost tier of a social structure left largely intact in all its steep gradations. The primary vehicle of this politics is the Democratic Party, the mass base of which was once the white working class, but which is now in transition to becoming an identity-based party, In which identity displaces class as its organizing principle and base constituency." Joining me to discuss woke culture is Professor Finkelstein. Uh, Woke culture he calls a civic form of McCarthyism, Uh, and we will discuss how it buttresses the ruling capitalist class. So you ask Uh, the question very early in the book, whether one's ethno-racial identity possesses a vital essence to be protected and preserved, or you ask, is it a fluke of nature that was instrumentalized to oppress and in an ideal world could potentially be eradicated as a social marker? You quote Frederick Douglass, who you note was canceled by uh, Afrocentrics uh, in his day for lacking black pride. Um, Can you talk about that? I
1: should begin by saying it's not a simple question. As I point out in the book, many of those who came to identify with the left, many of African Americans who came to identify with the left also strongly identified with being African American. And there was a question of how do you navigate these so to speak two identities? In the case of Paul Robeson, he at one point commented in his little autobiography, Here I Stand, uh, he said, people have often asked me, how do I navigate these two identities of being number one, a champion uh, in the rights of African-Americans, but number two, of being closely aligned with the Communist Party and becoming a genuine hero, a folk hero, the international working class. And that's not just in some sort of rhetorical sense. Uh, If you look at, for example, the Welsh miners, uh, totally revere Paul Robeson. There's a wonderful film uh, in which he stars as a miner uh, called Proud Valley. And you could see wherever he traveled, he made special dispensations to be certain that working people had access to his art, access to his music. If he would speak at Prince Albert Hall in the uh, UK, he would also have a separate concert for working people. When he goes down, you could see it on YouTube. When he goes down to Australia to perform, he goes to a, a building site to perform for the Australian working class. Uh, so he was asked, you know, he asked himself, how do I navigate these two identities? And his response always struck me as of some interest. He said, the more, I, the more conscious I became of my, myself being a Negro, the term of the time, the more conscious I became of being a Negro, the more I felt in solidarity with the working classes of the world. Uh, he says, it may sound on the surface like a contradiction, but in real life, it wasn't a contradiction he was able to find some sort of balance between the two identities. And I found it particularly poignant um, in the case of W.E.B. Du Bois, because as you know, Du Bois devoted his whole life in a very serious way, not in a kind of showy way, in a very serious way. He had resolved the purpose of his life was to erase what was called back then the color line. And he engaged in very serious scholarly pursuits to that end. Now, at a certain point, he had become radicalized um, and uh, came close to the Communist Party. He joined the Communist Party at the very end, but I thought that was mostly thumbing his nose at US imperialism before he went off to Ghana. But he certainly came close to the uh, communist or Marxist, if you want, uh, position. And um, at the end of his life, Du Bois was a very proud person. Uh, You couldn't call him W.E.B. Du Bois. You had to call him Dr. Du Bois. He did not accept anyone referring to him without that title, Dr. Du Bois. And he's around 80 years old, and Du Bois finds himself brought before uh, the government uh, uh, legal system for being loyal, being a foreign agent of the Soviet Union, because he was a strong member, a uh, uh, prominent member opposing war between Russia and the, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And he found himself handcuffed you know, at 80 years old uh, and brought before a, a judge. Well, you can just imagine for a person of his pride and a person of his stature, who had all the claims to um, being a respected person, suddenly at age 80, uh, being handcuffed. Um, and he says at the very end, he wrote several autobi- autobiographies, mostly because he didn't expect to live so long. Right? He died at a very right old age. He actually died the night before the March on Washington, 1963, literally the night before, which causes you to believe maybe there is some order in this universe. Um, And at the end of his life, in the last chapter of that last autobiography, it's it's a very poignant scene because he goes through everybody who deserted him. He said, When it comes to his 80th birthday, um, none of the leading Black figures, none of the college presidents, all of whom Black college presidents of the HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities, none of them would send greetings in support of him. And then he says at the very end, he said, I found a new friendship, a new world, and that was the world of people on the left, not people of necessarily black, people of the left internationally. And he said, that was my new community. And that to me was a, was a kind of, uh, it was, a, it was a, a revelatory end that he discovered all of the black. He said his name had become unmentionable among young people nobody had heard of Du Bois anymore. His, his name was literally why out. doubt. There was only one college, by the way, <laughs> only one college, it was Berkeley in the, I guess it was the very early 60s and maybe the late 50s, which put one of his books, some professor put one of his books on their curriculum. And he said he was astonished <laughs> that he was actually on a college curriculum uh, and he said he found a new world, a new universe, and that was the universe of people who have shared ideas and ideals, and the identity thing, which he devoted his whole life to trying to eradicate, um, from an intellectual point of view, but also from a activist point of view. He was the editor of the Crisis, which was the news, uh, the um, magazine of the NAACP. Um, he too discovered that there was a world beyond color. Uh, So I think I don't want to be dismissive of the kinds of uh, challenges trying to reconcile these various identities is. You have to always be careful of crossing the line to something that comes across as self-hating or. I'll just call it self-hating, and I. Uh, so, how do you claim this universalist identity without coming across as trying to escape your, so to speak, local uh, identity? I don't think those things are very easy to navigate. I, I, frankly, I wasn't, you know, to speak candidly, since we're we're having a serious conversation here. I wasn't altogether happy. With how Frederick Douglass turned out at the end, uh, he became a kind of Democratic Party hack, an apologist for Ulysses S. Grant's corrupt regi- uh, corrupt government. Uh, then he was looking for all of these high honors. He went over as a representative of the U.S. to Haiti, and then he became uh, he had some position in Washington D.C. I can't recall quite what. Uh, I wasn't too happy. And there was a little bit, I felt like, yes, the arguments he made for a universal identity were very eloquent. Actually, the part, passage excerpt in the book, uh, and which you've read, comes from a much longer passage. And I gave it to a friend of mine, Libora Mockaby. Uh, I asked her, can you cut it down because I can't print the whole speech. And she said she found it very hard to because it was just so eloquent and compelling. Uh, Douglas was a very impressive figure. You know, when you consider that he couldn't even read legally until he was 18. Yeah, uh, He digested apparently Robert Burns, Shakespeare, the Bible, Dickens, and you could see it. and. Um, I thought he was a little too, in my opinion, was very elegant, but it was also a little bit too glib, I thought, for a complicated question, which anybody who comes from a quote-unquote non-majoritarian group has to wrestle with, you know, whether, not because I'm oppressed as a Jew, you know, in the United States, it's completely ridiculous. Uh, I'm not oppressed as a Jew, but on the other hand, I have to always be careful about over, so to speak, bending the um, stick too much in the other direction. And it comes across as self-hating uh, and uh, you don't want to go there. You know? So I think it's a complicated question uh, personally. But the, where I have differences with the current focus in identity politics is the the, uh, the arguments they put forth. They have no content. It's not like the arguments are wrong. There's just no argument at all. It's completely vacuous. It's completely empty. It's filled with internal blatant contradictions. Now, we all know life is a complicated place, and it cannot always be reduced to clear, lucid formulas. The problem is uh, that this sort of the stuff you read is just so blatantly, flagrantly contradictory, and devoid of any. And you know, there's what you might call a rich contradiction. That is to say, a person contradicts himself, but it reflects a reality which is you have to wrestle with that contradiction. These aren't rich contradictions. This is just complete. It's completely vacuous intellectually. I, I want.
0: I want to read. A, I want to read a. We'll quote from your book that uh, that is about that point you write affirmative action relies on generic racial categories, but unless each generic category intrinsically correlates with distinct experiences, outlooks, etc, those admitted under it don't necessarily bring anything beyond themselves to the mix. You quote uh Gore Vidal, who was gay, uh talking about the gay community and and Vidal says what in God's name? do Eleanor Roosevelt and Roy Cohen have in common, which we could add, what in God's name do Clarence Thomas and Martin Luther King have in common? Uh, And and I I wanted you to speak about that fallacy of a black, brown, a woman, Asian, Jewish, gay perspective, the idea of proportional representation.
1: Again, uh, I admit and I want to be clear about it, I think these are complicated questions uh, and I have no problem with acknowledging that. So I'm sure you will agree with me if I say, if the choice is between no affirmative action and teaching an all white class and affirmative action and teaching a quote unquote diverse class, you prefer to teach in the diverse class. You don't want to walk into a classroom that looks like the junior version of the Ku Klux Klan. It's not nearly as exhilarating an experience as when you have a diverse, cl- uh, quote unquote, diverse class. Um, and you just—it's a—it it gives you a sense of when you have a diverse class. It's a sense of your, so to speak cultivating the humanity of the future. People get along, people communicate with each other, they argue, they disagree, but they're respectful. And also before class and after class, there's a real camarader- camaraderie warmth. It's a it's a special feeling. I'll give I'll give you an example and then I'll return to the question. I currently, or this past semester, I was teaching at Hunter College. And Hunter College is a uh, city university of New York. And it's all first generation college students, sons and daughters of immigrants overwhelmingly, but also working class kids uh, in addition, uh, all of them keeping down one or two jobs. So it's, uh, it's the rainbow. It's every imaginable type of person is in the class. And uh, one of the things that strikes me, I try to help students gain some self-confidence By learning to stand up in front of class and to speak. And sometimes students do wonderfully, and sometimes students bomb. But even when they bomb, everybody in the class breaks out in spontaneous applause when they're over, when they're finished. You know, a kind of warmth, generosity, and also there, but for the grace of God, no, I I could be up in front of that class and bombing. And for me, that's just a wonderful human experience to see the solidarity among students who, as I say, by any reckoning, represent every possibility, every combination and permutation of humanity. So that having been said, the problem with affirmative action, at least as the court, the uh, United States Supreme Court uh, 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 sanctioned affirmative action, approved of it, It approved of it only under one condition. Our Supreme Court says you can't use affirmative action for rectifying historical wrongs. You can't use affirmative action to be compensatory for currently existing racism. You can't use affirmative action because you think if you have more Black doctors, they'll necessarily be willing to serve in Black communities. The court discounted all of that. What the court said is we'll accept affirmative action on one ground and one ground alone. And that is different pe- the different uh life experiences, different life experiences will contribute to uh, the uh, educational will enhance the educational experience of everybody at, say, a university. And the problem is that. What exactly is, let's say you admit two African- Americans into a medical school class, so let's say you admit six on the, on the basis of affirmative action. Who exactly are they representing? Are they representing African-American people? Well, not really, because there's no consensus among African-American people on virtually anything. Uh, you could say, well, African-American people, broadly, broadly uh, support uh, police reform. Okay, that's fair enough. But then when it comes down to a policy question, how do you support police reform? Do you want to support defund the police? Well, that's very unpopular in the Black community. Uh, Do you want to support increased a police presence in the black community, Well, that's actually quite popular uh, among segments of the black community. So when it comes down to policy questions, when an African-American in class, say in the law school class, when he or she speaks up, theoretically, according to the Supreme Court, he or she is representing African-Americans. But of course that's not true because there's no consensus among African-Americans on these particular questions. If a gay African-American speaks up in a Harvard Law School class in favor of gay rights, is that representing the African-American community? Is that representing Baptist African-Americans? Is that representing evangelical African-Americans? No, it's just representing this particular person. So the premise of the affirmative action, at least as the Supreme Court laid it out, the premise is simply wrong. An individual does not represent the group. The individual at the end of the day represents the individual. That's it. Nothing more and nothing less. Uh, race, Race is refracted through a particular individual with a particular life experience. And therefore, with particular uh, uh a particular uh position on any of these questions. So I, I even though I will emphatically stand by, I would prefer not to teach in an all-white class. That's not the world I want to envisage in. in the future. It's not a world I don't want to help bring about. Uh I want to help bring about a world which is genuinely in all of its levels, a uh, representative of humankind. I prefer to be at Coney Island on a Sunday than at Martha's Vineyard at Coney Island on the, Coney Island, the beach. On a Sunday, you have every imaginable shape, uh, a, a color of humanity, everybody getting along as Rodney King famously said, can't we all get along? Well, Coney Island on the Sunday, uh, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Russians, uh, Muslims, practicing Muslims, uh, everybody gets along. I'd rather be a participant in that kind of, so to speak, experiment than an all-white class. But I don't think, you. to be perfectly honest, I don't think you can make a rational argument for it. I think the Supreme Court tried. I think the Supreme Court failed.
0: So, uh Woke culture comes with very clear delineations and rules and guidelines for those who perpetuate it. And I just want you to talk about how it was used effectively to elect Barack Obama and how it was used to uh, discredit the candidacy of Bernie Sanders.
1: On the Barack Obama presidency, and I know I'm going to use the word, but many people may take offense. It was basically, in my opinion, it was a scam. The United States was at a uh, uh, in a crisis in two thousand and eight, the both internationally with the disaster of the Iraq war and domestically with the uh, Great Recession, as it came to be called. And Americans were hungry for a change. They were actually hungry for a radical change. they were They wanted a rupture with the past. Along came Barack Obama. Um, Barack Obama was basically marketed by David Axelrod and David Plouffe. He he was marketed as a morality tale. That is to say, uh, it was a litmus test for the electorate. A litmus test for the electorate. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? Uh, Obama himself admitted he stood for nothing. It was one of the most amusing parts of his memoir, uh, The the Promised Land. He called it a neat trick. The neat trick, I mean, that's his words, not mine. The neat trick was he said, I stood for nothing. And um, of course, he only stood for one thing he was black. And so it became a morality tale. Normally, Normally, elections are referendums on the candidates. But this election was reversed. It was a referendum on the electorate. If you're a good person, you'll vote for Barack Obama. If you're a bad person, you'll not vote for Barack Obama. And the Americans, the uh, whites, uh, whites about half, uh, about half of whites. Uh, they let their, first of all, they wanted the change. And it seemed as if electing the black president wouldn't be the end of the change. It would be the first step towards a real change that would, uh, break, uh, with the past. And so Americans, both for self-interest, the society, our country was in very bad shape. But also there was a kind of letting, they let their better angels control their worse angels. And they took the gamble, gamble in the sense that their, their worst angels, you know, were racist. That's okay. Uh, and, uh, took the gamble with Barack Obama. And, um, but that was what everybody, everybody who voted for him thought would be the first step Towards a rupture with the past turned out to be the last step, because in fact Obama, if you read his memoir, if you read his uh, the uh, his campaign managers, Bluf and um, Axelrod, if you look at who he chose for his can, uh, his cabinet uh, right from the beginning, uh, Robert Gates, Hillary Clinton, uh, Timothy Geithner. Uh, a critical role for uh, Larry Summers. It was clear that there wasn't going to be any change beyond his identity, uh, beyond the fact that he was black, and that's awful thin gruel when you're suffering in, a, in, a, in the know in an economic system, and you're hoping for real radical change. Uh, Let, let's
0: let's jump to Sanders because I only have a few minutes left. Because um, the, just as that woke culture anointed Obama, it was used to destroy Sanders.
1: Yeah, what, what happened was with Sanders, Sanders represented what you might call the paradigm of a non-Obama campaign. Obama was a totally me-centered identity politics uh, platform. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders was an us It wasn't a me, it was an us, we campaign and was completely based in a class, uh, I don't know, class struggle, but a class-based platform. It was very straightforward, no ambiguity, Medicare for all, uh, green New deal, abolish student tuition, abolish student debt, very clear cut, it wasn't a neat trick or as Obama elsewhere called it, he called his campaign the ultimate Rorschach test. Everybody saw what they wanted to see in it. No, in in Bernie Sanders' campaign, what you saw is what you got. It was very clear what he was running on. And it was a very interesting phenomenon, which for me was one of the most striking things as I was writing the book, was to notice that both in 2016 and 2020, the high priests and high priestesses of uh, identity politics, be it Kimberly Crenshaw, Ms. Intersectionality, a ta codes, Coates, um, a Whoopi Goldberg, a Joy Reid, they all coalesced to denounce Bernie Sanders. And that was most visible, by the way, it was most visible, not just in these individuals, but in the New York Times, which became uh, during the Trump years, when the resistance was declared by Nancy Pelosi, the Times became this hyper woke organ, and it was hyper woke exactly simultaneously with being hyper anti-Bernie, and that to me was a very revealing fact. The sectors, the individuals who were most woke, were also yeah. vehemently viciously, virulently anti bernie Sanders. And that to me, I quote at some point in the book, uh, Leon Trotsky, who describes all of these sects, which are very radical, 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 hyper-radical, super radical, cutting edge. But he says at the moment of truth, they reveal their true colors. And the two campaigns in 2016 and 2020 the Tanahisi Codes, the Angela Davises, the New York Times, the MSNBC—they all revealed their true colors. I'll just give you one example that struck me today. So you know Jeffrey Goldberg, this editor of the Atlantic magazine. Uh, he was for a large part of his life a stenographer for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and he called that news uh, interviewing. Netanyahu or interviewing Netanyahu's generals and just repeating what they have to say. And because he had had some cachet, Uh, he got all of these interviews. He then became the go-to person for uh, Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama invited him quite often to the White House. He was Jeff. Jeff. He would have David Remnick there and others, and he would tell them, if you have any questions, Go ask Jeff. So, uh, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, he was a prison guard in Gaza, then he became an Israeli prison guard in Gaza and an accessory to torture in Gaza. Then he becomes a stenographer for Netanyahu, then he becomes a stenographer for Obama. And now, in the latest issue of Atlantic Magazine, He's become the stenographer for Zelensky and the Ukrainian so-called leadership, I'll use the word, you can disagree, uh, the puppet leadership in the Ukraine. And it was very striking to me. So now he's become, he's calling for all out war against Russia. Russia has to conquer Crimea. He stands along with uh, Ann Applebaum, who's a lunatic. Uh, he has to conquer uh, Crimea. And here's the thing. Here's this super hawk with this long pedigree of apologists for murderers, himself an accessory to torture. And at the same time, and here's the point at the same time, his magazine is the main venue for woke people. Uh, Tanahisi Coates, Goldberg pro- promoted him to national correspondent. Two uh, A month ago, he had an article, he published this absolutely wretched article by Ibram X. Kendi on the martyrdom of an intellectual. You know, first of all, the idea that Kendi is an intellectual is laughable itself. But then his martyrdom, martyrdom, he got $10 billion from Jack Dorsey, the ex-CEO of uh, Twitter, martyrdom. He probably earns now about a million dollars a year between being the director of the Anti Racism Center at Boston University and being the Andrew Mellon um, uh, scholar on the humanities, uh, chair of the humanities. Uh, and he gets $30,000 for speaking an hour and a half when he goes to universities to speak. In any event, the same person who's this mad, madman, stenographer, for war, uh, former prison god, he's also his magazine is uh, a vehicle for all these woke people. When Tannahisi Coates and him speak, like they did at the um, at one conference, uh, uh, Goldberg refers to him as T. 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 He's so cool, he's so chill. He's so down with the hood, and he also happens to be a warmonger and an accessory to torture. It's such a perfect fit. It's such a perfect fit between these folks who want to sabotage the Bernie Sanders campaign, these folks who are wading in lots and lots of money. You know, a friend of mine, Ed. Harvard wanted to invite Angela Davis to speak, because uh, he's active in the Palestine Solidarity, and he wanted to have, have an event for Black-Palestinian Solidarity. And he invited Angela Davis, and she wanted $35,000. We're
0: going to stop there, Norman. Uh, that was Norman Finkelstein on his new book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics cancel culture and academic freedom. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at ChrisEdges.substack.